This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. Yes, it's another episode of the Doctor Who podcast. This episode is absolutely jam-packed with Doctor Who goodies for your enjoyment. Hope you enjoy it. Yes, I know that was uh, using the word enjoy twice in one intro, but I don't care, James, I don't care. No, and I don't think you should. Given the time it is in Australia at the moment, and given that I'm really ill at the moment, if we use the same word 12 times in one sentence, which has only got 12 words in it, then I think, listeners, <laughs> you're lucky. <laughs> we are a bit topsy-turvy around about this time, aren't we? Because I'm, I'm recording in the morning and you're recording in the evening. We We just don't know what to do with ourselves really no absolutely and not only that it's the first time that we've been talking to each other for well quite some time i mean the, the particularly attentive listeners would have realized that we haven't actually been in the same piece of cyberspace together at the same time for at least three episodes now and uh, so it is a little bit strange i think just uh, actually getting a response when i'm talking into a microphone trav <laughs> it's same for me yes yes so had to dust off the old microphone and plug it back in. It was so unfamiliar. It was. But having said that, did you not find when you do record on your own, you very rarely get into arguments or debates? Um, I, I find questioning my own comments quite a lot. I'll, I'll <laughs> sort of turn to myself and say, why did you say that, Trevor? And then I'll turn back and, uh, and then I'll turn back and I'll redo it just based on what I've said to myself. Well, it would have been quite interesting, I think, had listeners heard the raw recordings of our solo efforts over the last couple of episodes, I think, because um, how on earth we managed to produce anything that was vaguely listenable is beyond me. But, uh, but Trev, you've done remarkably well. And all, we, all we can say is, Tom, come back from your extended holiday soon. <laughs> oh, please, please, please. Put us in our place, Tom. We we need your guiding hand. Absolutely. And and, and of course, the one thing that Tom is, is going to be missing now is he's having a good old chat about the latest series of Torchwoods, which has screened mm. now both in the United States. Five days, I believe it was. It was four or five days before it screened here in the UK, um, which for me is a bit of a non-event. But if you if you listen to other podcasts and look on the forums, there were some particularly aggrieved Doctor Who fans that uh, stateside got it before the UK. And as far as you're concerned, Trev, I take it people should consider themselves fortunate because I don't think you've had it at all yet, have you? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, no. I, but I, I can understand where, where they're coming from because... At, at its essence, as Torchwood is a UK show, and just because they've gone for this American U of K co-production, suddenly we get the Americans having first dibs on it rather than rather than the U of K. I mean, I, I can totally understand where they're coming from. Mm. Having said that, it's only five days. Yeah. So, really, and to be perfectly honest, it's only Torchwood. It's not <laughs> like it's Doctor Who. So, um, yeah... 
at, at least we're seeing it within a reasonable time. I suppose so. And, and I guess an ideal world is day and date. But to be absolutely honest, it's not unprecedented. And I, I mean, you look at, what was it, The Five Doctors, I think, aired over mm, in the United indeed. States the before in the UK. Of, yes. And also the, the, the Fox TV movie. Um, and I think this is for slightly different reasons. I think fundamentally, um, stars have put all the money into this. And uh, one thing that I'm sure we'll discuss in a minute is is how good this series of Torchwood looks. You can tell there's been a lot of money thrown at it. Um, and I think it raises the debate, you know, just because they've got so much more money at their disposal, does that necessarily mean the programme is improved? And I think that's something we should uh, we should focus on in a little while. But in all fairness, as far as I'm concerned, five or six days or whatever it was, I mean, the fact that I don't know precisely how many days it was, um, <laughs> you know, it proves that I really didn't care very much. And I wasn't that bothered about spoilers either, um, despite the fact I assist in moderating a forum. So as far as I was concerned, it wasn't a problem. I just wanted to see the episode as and when it was broadcast. Well, before we talk about Torchwood, I want to talk about something just a little bit older than uh, Torchwood Miracle Day. I want to talk about the uh, Mara Tales box set, which which I think has been out for quite a while now, hasn't it? But mm. Um, mm. I, I think we've only both finally got the chance to actually sit down with some spare time and actually uh, watch this release. So now the two stories that comprise the Mara box set um, are Kinder and Snake Dance. Now, for once, actually having these stories in a box set, putting these two stories in one box actually make sense because they're linked, of course, by um, a, a common enemy, the Mara. Yeah, and certainly I take it the comparison in your mind is is the recent Earth Story box set that paired the Awakening with the Gunfighters. With, yes. yes. Which have got practically nothing in common apart from the fact they both had a character called the Doctor in them. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, and of course the Doctor appears in Kinder and Snake Dance too. And of all of the obvious stories to pair up, then you couldn't get much more obvious, I think, than these two stories that were broadcast pretty much about 11 months apart from each other. And uh, that was something that I hadn't actually clocked before. I thought they were at opposite ends of Davison's era until no, I actually looked at the no. broadcast dates. And it's not the case, is it? No, no. Well, that's, that's right. Uh, Kinder um, is in the very early part of uh, Peter Davison's first season. And um, Snake Dance, I think, is the... Uh, it's the end of the second season, isn't it? Mm, Am I yeah, right with that? pretty much, yeah. yeah. I think Kinder was broadcast in February 1982 and Snake Dance was the following January. And when when you watch the documentaries on, on these DVDs, you realise what an achievement that was because both scripts had some difficulties in actually being realised. And I think we were actually quite fortunate to get Snake Dance at all, uh, given that Christopher Bailey's agent strongly advised him not to take on an additional Doctor Who, and he almost listened to him. Um, but personally, I, I'm really, really glad that these two stories do exist, because I don't know whether I've said this before, uh, on the DWP at least, but these two stories are my favourite of the Fifth Doctor's era. I, I, th I think you've mentioned it once or five times, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have I mentioned before that I like these two stories? <laughs> Just a few times, mm. yes. I really quite like but yeah, these um, stories. These, these two stories, <laughs> I think especially Kinder, uh, are ones that are, are always used as examples of um, Doctor Who being adult, Doctor Who being intelligent, mm. Doctor Who presenting us with some really, really deep and thoughtful ideas, um, 
but wrapped up in like a children's TV program um, format. I, I think they're certainly more challenging uh, to the viewer, although it would certainly have an appeal to children. And I remember seeing Kinder pretty much on broadcast, I think, and this was one of the very few Doctor Who stories ever that gave me nightmares. So I would have been eight years old at the time. And the image of the snake on Tegan's arm, uh, particularly in the dream sequencing in Kinder, which has got to be, I think, the first or second episode. I think it was the first episode. Uh, stuck in my mind and it etched itself in my subconscious for, for a long time. And I, that's one that I do remember waking up in bed, yelling for my parents to come and, uh, well, come and make it go away, I suppose. Um, but I would have been eight <laughs> years old then, eight years old. And strangely, I've not rewatched Kinder that much. I saw it when it came out on VHS, but since then, I haven't seen it at all. I think I only watched that video cassette on one occasion. And so, you know, it was with some trepidation that I sat down and rewatched this again. And I can see why it gave me nightmares. And even now, mm. I would be mm. concerned about showing it to, to young children. Um, you've, you've got a couple of young kids, Trev. I mean, have they seen Kinder? Did it, did it affect them at all? Or? No, they, they haven't. And it, it isn't one of the stories that um, I suppose they've seen pictures of and said, oh, I, we'd like to watch that one. Um, I I can understand what you mean about not having watched it very often because it's not the sort of story you'd pull off the shelf on a nice you know sort of rainy Saturday afternoon and sit down and watch Kinder because it's it's not particularly uplifting, mm. it's not a a feel good story it it's not an action story really it, it's all uh, four episodes of studio bound stuff and um, it's probably more known for the horrible rubbery snake in part four than <laughs> than anything else in it really yeah absolutely and, and it's good to see that you have the option of watching uh, this story without that rubbery snake they've, they've done a fantastic cgi sequence that uh, that replaces it and you can watch it you know without being taken out of the story by this big lump of rubber uh, but it's it's weird because a lot of the stories particularly the ones in davison's era that i really like I haven't seen that many times and I, I do wonder why I don't revisit stories that I really enjoy very often. Uh, maybe it's because I enjoy them all the more when I do watch them um, but Caves of Androzani is another one unsurprisingly that I really like and I think I've only seen that three times ever but I remember mm. I can tell mm. you in, where I was on each of those occasions including when it was, a, <laughs> was broadcast and I think that's probably a little bit more telling that says something about the story than... Um, than others, like Warriors of the Deep, I've seen countless times, and that's because I was desperately trying to like it, I think. I don't profess to be any expert or, or even have any glimmer of knowledge about some of the concepts that they were um, putting forward in this story, but reading the notes and reading stuff in books about it, it, it had a lot of Buddhist elements to it. Yeah. Um, it it yeah. talked about what the uh, circle of life, uh, thing things come around again, basically, and um, it, it was covering a lot of very, very... Um, deep concepts for Doctor Who, really. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it was something that Tom talked about when we were discussing, I think it was The Cradle of the Snake, which was the big finished sequel to these two uh, television stories to feature the return of the Mara. And, and Tom mentioned the whole kind of snake that 
at its own tail, you know, and that's all linked mm. in, I believe, with some kind of Buddhist mythology. And I, I can't claim to know anything about it either. Um, but Christopher Bailey, once again, makes no bones about it at all on a documentary. It, he said he wouldn't have mattered what he would have been commissioned to have written at the time. It could have been Doctor Who. It could have been an episode of Play School. It could have been anything. He would have basically told the story of Kinder because he was so determined to get that story out there at the time. And and normally, when a writer has that kind of agenda and that kind of motive, it does compromise the story, but it, it, it just doesn't this time. I think Kinder is so wonderfully unique um, in, in that particular season, and linked with some fantastic performances from the guest cast, notably Simon Rouse, who... I'd never appreciated so much as, uh, as as Hindle before. I've seen him in lots of other programmes here in the UK. Again, the bill stands out. And he's quite a subdued, quite a bland character in that. So watching him go for it, hell for leather, in this particular story was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Mm, and mm, and, and mm. Neris Hughes was, was fantastic. The chemistry she created with uh, Peter Davison was great. And I'd like to have seen that relationship developed almost i think she could have been quite a good companion if um, it had left nissa or adric behind and taken her instead it's also the story that forms the basis for a couple of chapters out of the book the unfolding text by john tullock now now those that aren't familiar with that book you you might know it by the way i used to remember it when um i came across it during high school it's the book you find in your school library pick up thinking it's a great new Doctor Who novel, reading about two words of it and realising it's incredibly difficult and putting it back on the shelf. <laughs> That's the unfolding text. It, it, it was one of the first Doctor Who novel, in fact, probably even the first, to really go in depth into some of the uh, symbols and messages and uh, subtext that Doctor Who whether intentionally or unintentionally, was uh, trying to put into their stories. I can't say I've heard of that one. <laughs> what particular element was it? Was, was it just the fact that there were so many layers to Kinder? And I think if, if you look at the story, is, is, is it telling a story about illness? Is it telling a story about drugs? Is it telling a story about people going crazy? Um, and the book that you've just described, quite eloquently, I have to say, uh, is all about um, the subconscious on many different levels. Is that is that what you're saying? I think you'll just have to read the book, James. You'll you'll have to go to your local school library and uh, get get yourself a copy. But yeah, I I think it's it's all of those things really, um, which makes I think Kinder such a fascinating case study for the book. I, I think there's a whole one or two chapters of the book devoted to nothing but Kinder, because oh, wow. I believe John Tullock visited the set during the recording of this story. But um, back to Kinder, and, and I suppose even more importantly to its sequel, mm. which was, uh, as, as, as you said, James, merely a year later, Snake Dance. Snake Dance, I have to say, I think edges it for me over Kinder, which I think is quite unusual. Most people say the first story was, uh, was stronger. But I, I managed to watch Snake Dance in one sitting and it wasn't difficult in any way, shape or form. I, I just sat down and watched it as I would uh, a film if, if I'm not interrupted and I wasn't on this occasion. And it just had a certain something. Um, I have a feeling it was something to do with the direction. Um, not entirely certain, but I, I like the different angles. Um, I like the different sets that we used. I like the way that Tegan was made even more scary in this particular story than she was in Kinder. And, you know, 
Martin Clunes, people often say hammed it up incredibly, but he really didn't for me. He he no. underplayed it. He's quite understated, quite different really to hamming it up. And I think the reason people think he does go into pantomime mode is because of the becoming outfit he had to wear, which is basically <laughs> a rather short summer dress, um, which, of course, mm. and, and that particular scene is always rolled out whenever they're trying to do some kind of, I don't know, retrospective compilation um, piece just before the sports results on Saturday night he take a look to see Martin Clunes before he was really famous and I think this was his first telly that he got and he's absolutely brilliant in it particularly when he's he possessed is, yeah. by Lamara it's a great conceit for a villain not that he wants world domination or you know that he wants to uh, amass great wealth he's just being evil because he's bored Yes. I mean, it's such a wonderful thing for a villain. I'm, I'm not even sure whether he's particularly evil. I think he's just playing around. He's entertaining himself. And it's quite hard to write a character like that, I think, and make him interesting. And I think you've got to rely on the performance uh, of the actor. And, and, and this time around, every time Martin Clunes was on the screen, he was absolutely dazzling. And I just thought this was another very, very strong story. The the use of live snakes as well. Now, I've got a thing about snakes. I know, you know, they're not many people's favourite animal, but I wouldn't quite say I've got a phobia, but they make me feel extremely uncomfortable. And, and mixed with this kind of ethereal story once again, uh, particularly the image of the skull, the snake's head skull in the crystal ball... It rewoke some childhood uncomfortableness, <laughs> if that's the right way of saying it. I, rem- I remember watching it again and thinking, oh, God, no, not the Mara. But I, I just think these two stories are incredibly evocative for me of, of my childhood. And um, I did feel somewhat awkward watching them again. But uh, w- which of these two stories is your favourite, Trev? I think it would be Snake Dance, even though... Um, it's still a studio-bound story for its entire four episodes. Um, it makes better use of that. There's a bigger cast in this one. Um, it's it's actually set on a planet which is populated by more than five people. Um, and it has Martin Clunes in a loincloth. I mean, what else can you ask for? I think the only kind of bum note here, Trev, for me is, and I, and I forget the actor or, or the character's name, actually, but it, it's the kind of curator, the administrator, um, who basically doesn't believe in the legend of the Mara at all and thinks Davison is a complete loon or thinks the Doctor is a complete loon. Uh, I wasn't overly impressed with his performance or the character. Now, that that goes against pretty much what everyone else says on the special features of this disc. They were saying that he made a very boring character come to life. I'm not so certain that he did. I think the reason why he was a boring character was because he was quite a common character. If you look at something like... um, You look at Jaws, okay? It's a disaster movie. There's always a character who says, oh, there's no danger, let's just carry on as normal. And he he plays that particular character uh, within Snake Dance. And for me, it stands out quite a bit that, you know, clearly he's going to be wrong. And just how long is it that he's going to say, I'm not listening to you, Doctor? Um, and this time around, it was nearly the four episodes. And mm. um, so, no, I wasn't overly impressed by that particular character. 
I do get what you mean, but I, I think his character is in a unique position in Doctor Who because in this particular story, we have the Doctor that's really being treated like the loony for a, a great deal of time. Yeah. No one believes him. I, I seem to remember that scene, I think it's towards the end of one of the episodes where he basically stands up in front of the crowd, trying in vain to convince them that the Mara is real and, you know, you know they should do something about it. But he, he's just shouted down and laughed at. Now, I see where you're coming from and I know the point you're trying to make and I think you are very, very right. Uh, the Doctor is not taken seriously here and I wonder whether or not that scene uh, where he is basically, you know, seen by the entire crowd as a bit of an idiot is what inspired Russell T Davis to write Midnight because that's a more overt story where the Doctor is simply not taken seriously and of course it's got some dire consequences um, this occasion in Snake Dance they suddenly realise that the Doctor is talking sense right at the last minute and uh, therefore they're able to do something about it not the case in Midnight you actually see the consequences played out but I do enjoy seeing the Doctor when he's being particularly assertive and the closer he gets to being aggressive, (laughs) the less seriously he's taken by those around him. And I think Chris Bailey may have been one of the first to write a script like that. Being a box set release, it's certainly brimming with extras. There's there's the normal uh, commentary tracks. There's there's some wonderful extras which go very much into talking about how the, how the story was created, its um, Buddhist influences, its, its you know, sort of deep and meaningful type influences. Um, was, was there a favourite extra or two on those uh, discs that piqued your interest, James? Well, not so much a particular feature, but I certainly had a favourite element, and that was to see Chris Bailey talking about his work. I've mentioned him a number of times already when we were talking about the stories, but he was quite an elusive character. Even Doctor Who magazine has only recently published the very first interview with him, certainly within the last six months, I think it was. But he's he's a fascinating individual, and the way that they've intercut his stories with Eric Saywood's stories has is, is been quite clever, and they're doing it basically to create an argument except that they're in two different rooms what would have been good (laughs) would have been to have Saywood and Chris Bailey together I mean Eric Saywood doesn't seem to like anybody I mean he begrudgingly accepts (laughs) that these were particularly good scripts but he talks about problems with um the initial draft of Kinder. He talks about how difficult it was to try and persuade uh, Bailey's agents that he really should write another Doctor Who, and eventually he went to Bailey himself. Um, One particularly interesting anecdote, if you like, was where Saywood said, in an attempt to convince Bailey to write Snake Dance, that he'd be turning down a good few thousand pounds. Now, that's the very first time I've ever heard anyone mention money in, in Doctor Who and I would be fascinated to find out how much a writer would have got paid for a script and which ones got paid more than others and of course that information mm. is always mm. going to remain confidential but this is the first time uh, that I'd heard a few thousand pounds so in 1982-1983 I wonder whether that was a typical kind of rate for writing a Doctor Who script It could have been I, I know when I was reading the uh biography of Terry Nation, they, they basically get paid per episode. So they'll mm. get a very standard BBC fee um, for every episode of Doctor Who that they script, whether it actually ends up being used in the TV show or not. I interviewed, well, I've interviewed on several occasions, Frank Williams, who played the vicar 
in Dad's Army uh, for the Dad's Army podcast. I haven't plugged that for some time now. And um, he was he was telling me about his royalty structure. And essentially, he gets paid every time an old episode goes out on telly or on uh, cable or Sky. He gets paid what he would have got paid if he'd have been doing that job now. So essentially, yeah. they take the sum of money that they got paid back in the day, they apply the inflationary rate to it, and they get paid again. So essentially, it's like he's doing the job again. Now, that's how contracts were written, certainly in the late 60s, early 70s. I mean, perhaps by the 80s, when these two stories were written, BBC had become a little bit more commercially savvy. But I do find it quite interesting that actors can appear in a very, very, you know, brief scene in Doctor Who and if it gets repeated as they've been done to death uh, on UK Gold or um, UK TV Gold or whatever it's called now that they just get a check plopped through the letterbox uh, you know periodically but yeah the Maritals box set um, bringing together the epoch of uh, James's love of Doctor Who Kinder and Snake Dance all in one tidy little cardboard container um, please check it out there, there's some really interesting stories there a different direction for Doctor Who a, a direction Doctor Who really didn't go down very often but when it did um, certainly by the time of Snake Dance I think they really got it bang on mm. and uh, yeah if, if you want to see another side of what they're doing with Doctor Who in the classic era then, then you wouldn't go far wrong to uh, try out the Mara Tales box set A couple of weeks ago, James and I got together in, in the uh, virtual camper van and um, we, we recorded a ton of stuff. Quite honestly, we sat here and we talked and we talked and we talked, as people do when they haven't talked to each other for quite a while, which we hadn't at that point. We used a lot in the episode, but we had just a little bit left over that just we couldn't squeeze into the show, so, so we'd like to uh, share that with you now. Um, James and I basically had a bit of a chat about um, Series 6. James had some questions that he wanted to ask me and, uh, yeah, to, to, to get my unscripted, unprompted, totally random answers. I don't know why he wanted that, but here it is. OK, well, it's been about two weeks now uh, here in the U of K. Um, you see, Trev, even I'm calling it the U of K now, and I live here. It's infectious, um, isn't it? <laughs> do you know we've had a rolls of, off the tongue well we've had a couple of emails saying why do you call it the u of k do you trevor you do you really not understand uk geography and uh no this <laughs> this kind of thing it goes back doesn't it? it goes back to your who cast days i think when you did call it yeah. U of k once and we've just yeah, not stopped yeah, there's, there's long-standing things i've been doing for years and years and years like i actually received an email from one of our listeners a few weeks back wondering what i had against tom baker and they said, why, why do you hate Tom Baker so much? You're always having a go at him. And I emailed back and said, what are you talking about? I absolutely love the guy. I, I think he's a fantastic doctor. And he goes, oh, you're always, you know, lampooning his voice and calling him darling. And, you know, hello, darling, and whatever, and all that type of stuff. And uh, I said, no, that's, that's, that's affectionate. And it's, you know, it's, it's longstanding. So, yeah, there's... Little things you might pick up on the show here and there that we all do, I think, really, that, you know, you, you, you could probably call 
our catchphrases. Well, I, I don't know. I think something like Trevor Tropes could catch on. What do you think? <laughs> Trevor Tropes. Mm. <laughs> Whereas uh, catchphrases is probably, you know, uh, much more in my area, I think. <laughs> but there you go. But anyway, let's uh, let, let's move on to what I actually wanted to ask you about. Um, it's it, mm. The last time we sat down and talked about Doctor Who in the camper van was to discuss A Good Man Goes to War. And I was still a bit pumped after that because I liked the episode so much. Your reaction was a little bit uh, less enthusiastic, shall we say. Um, But now that the dust has settled and you've had time to reflect on the first seven episodes of uh, of season six, I mean, are your feelings any different now uh, that you're looking at um, those particular episodes as one story, perhaps? I mean, have you been thinking about Doctor Who uh, more than you would normally at the end of a series, for instance? No. Well, actually, I've probably been thinking less about Doctor Who than I normally would at the end of a series. And I think that's down to the split of the season. And because there is still so much left hanging, even at the end of those seven stories, that is going to play out in the next half or even in the next year's worth of stories. While I'm not incredibly that fussed either way that we're only having seven here and seven or six there or whatever it is at the end of the year, I think it has affected my... I don't know, I, I won't say enjoyment because I, I did enjoy the stories as a whole, but I'm certainly still not sitting here thinking about them now as much as I was at the end of the Series 5 13-episode run. Wow. Uh, it, it, it's just strange because I, I don't think it's left me with as big an impact as like a whole season's worth did last year. Mm. No, it's strange because the way that this season has been told or the story that it's telling this season has really divided fandom and it doesn't seem to be that much middle ground Uh, for me i've never thought about a series or a set of episodes of doctor who anywhere near as much as i have as, as 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 this time around i mean particularly the opening two episodes asked so many questions as you say and I've been theorising, I've been thinking, well, this could happen, that might be the case. And when something like Black Spot turned up, you know, which is actually a fairly okay episode if you watch it in isolation, but the the, the feeling of, um, oh, come on, just get on with the story, uh, <laughs> was, was, was so prevalent in my mind because Moffat are plugged into something that I didn't really know existed in my brain, and that was, you know, I, I'm... I'm I'm so enthusiastic about Doctor Who in the way that I am about some of the American series and I really want to know what's going to happen at the end of this particular yeah. arc and yeah. the the three stories that I loved were the opening two and uh, a good man goes to war and I've been looking on the forums which you know <laughs> at the best of times you, you think well you know should we really go anywhere near the forums because <laughs> they drag you in like a swamp you know you, you just kind of walk into it and you try and extract yourself from it and just let it get on with whatever a swamp does but the forum doesn't allow you to do that you've always got to go back and pick up on one particular remark somebody else has made and uh, I've lost track the number of theories now that I've either read or contributed to on our own Doctor Who podcast forums. Um, 
But one of the things I wanted to run past you, and I've I've I thought of this. This is an original thought from James. I do have them occasionally. God, we um, should have some sting, like some really dramatic sting music there or something. Yeah, or a light bulb coming on or something. You know, an original <laughs> but, thought by James. Well, there you go. Um, you know, and this is what this series of Doctor Who has done. It's uh, all manner of little ideas going off inside my head that I haven't actually rubbished myself inside of five minutes. But the one that I want to tell you about is is about River's Diary. And I think that's a bit of a misnomer because I don't think it's River's and I don't think it's a diary. I think it's a reference guide that's been written for her by somebody else. And it could be the Doctor or it could be Amy, I don't know. It could even be Rory, who knows. But I just wondered what you thought about that. An interesting question. Um because you caught me a bit on the run here, because you haven't you haven't pre-warned me about this, James, and, and, Quite and I'm very cross at you. <laughs> you know I love my preparation. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I my my gut instinct would be to say no, um, mainly because I think River is so gleeful, so interested, so invested in that diary that I think it's something she's written herself. That I I think it's something she's put together herself. Um, if it was something that had been written for, like, you know, the doctor said to her, here, take this, use this to sort of figure out where, where we are, basically, um, I don't think she would be as um, emotional about it if, if she was just given some sort of, like, reference book to look at. I really think she's written it herself based on her experiences with the doctor. Well, let me try and persuade you, or at least tempt you with a couple of other arguments. First of all... It's in the shape of a TARDIS. So I'm beginning to wonder whether or not that's a coincidence or whether it was just River Song's own design, if you like. So that's that's one thing. And secondly, think back to the end of Series 5, right at the very end, the wedding scene in Big Bang. Now, when the Doctor didn't exist because he was the other side of the cracks or wherever he was supposed to be, the writing in that diary disappeared now, as far as I'm concerned, there was no particularly definitive explanation given as to why that writing disappeared. Now, it did reappear when Amy remembered the Doctor back into existence. Now, if the Doctor had written that reference guide for River, then if he'd been deleted from existence, then yes, the writing would have been deleted. But wouldn't it also have disappeared if... Basically, when the Doctor was removed from existence, their exper- their shared experiences were also removed. Therefore, they were never written to start with. Possibly, but River seemed to remember them, and she was observing the writing appearing and disappearing. Yeah, no, but that, that, that's something that's been shown time and time again in Doctor Who, that time will change around the TARDIS crew, that it will change around the um, people that are, are travelling with the Doctor. So I think that's just um, a result of that. I mean, we, we, we've seen it time and time again in Doctor Who, that um, time has been changed, but the companions of the Doctor still remember events as they were, mm. rather than as they now are due to the um, event or cataclysm or whatever. Okay. Well, let me ask you one other question to do with that that may make you look at it slightly differently. When Rory, <laughs> when Rory went back to see River um, in her cell and she'd just been out with a doctor with Stevie Wonder in 1912 or something, um, 
it was very clear there that River knew who Rory was. She knew that she, Rory was um, her father. And I wonder whether or not it was just shortly after she had actually killed a good man because she was so tender and affectionate uh, towards Rory. Um, she was saying, yes, we have met and, and so on. And then she looked in her diary. When Rory says, you've got to come with me now, she looked in her diary. And that looked to me as if it was a case of looking to see what she's supposed to do. And if it was a reference guide written by the doctor and given to her, possibly the very first time she ever met the doctor, then maybe that's why she was just checking to see whether or not she could go to Demon's Run and help or not. There's an argument there to say, well, perhaps River had already been to Demon's Run and she was just looking at the diary to see what she'd written about it. I but totally I agree with that. Yeah, that that is what I agree with. That, yeah, Rory has met River right at the end of her life, basically, or at the end of her experiences with the Doctor. I'm I'm sure the Rory experience um, in at the beginning of Good Man Goes to War is pretty much takes place just before Tennant meets her in Science in the Library. I'm sure that really? happens. She gets released from prison, she goes on the expedition, um, and, and then gets sucked up into the machine, basically. Um, hmm. But th- there's, there's nothing in what you're saying that even makes me even want to consider that the Doctor wrote it, when everything you're saying still means that River could have quite easily written it. I'm not so sure. We'll have to wait and see. But uh, as I said, it's very rare that I have original thoughts. So I just wanted to uh, to run it past you at least. So we'll, we'll have to see. <laughs> I've got one other area that I want to address. And I think you're probably just going to say, nah, or pretty much <laughs> words to that effect Good. anyway. Nice short segment. That's what I love on the DW. It could be. Oh, if oh, you could always edit me down anyway. Um, <laughs> do you remember when we sat down, the three of us in the camper van, and we were talking about uh, episode two, and we were wondering why Canton was chasing River, Rory and Amy. We couldn't really come up with a you know decent reason as to why he was suddenly chasing them across deserts, you know, three months later, despite them being in the same clothes. We we just didn't know why. And I think we put it down to, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. I'm beginning to think that it does matter. And I think we will be returning to America at some point um, in the finale of, of, of season six. Because I think we're going to find out what happened in those three months. We're going to find out why Canton was chasing them. And also, I think the fact that the Doctor is 200 years older than we last saw him at the beginning of Season 6, I think that all ties into that little sequence somehow. Something happens within that three-month period, um, I think, to the Doctor personally. We'll have to wait and see, obviously. So, um, am, am I right? Was my predicted response from Trev? <laughs> nah. Or what well, are you talking about, it's, James? it's more like most of the stuff we've talked about in Series 6 and infuriating, well, we'll have to wait and see. You, you talked right at the beginning before those questions about how this season's been so full of questions and stuff we've had to try and figure out and come up with theories for. That's always put me a little bit on the back foot, a little bit, because... I'm I'm really really worried that we're venturing down soap opera territory because if if you look at a lot of the things that we're theorizing about in isolation, it seems like Neighbours or Home and Away or what 
crossroads or <laughs> east enders or whatever you guys have over there um yeah yeah who who is the uh, you know um who is the baby who is river song um you know what what relationship is this what relationship is that what happened during these few months i mean it, it seems like it's ripped from a soap opera um script and that's uh, that's what worries me. And and the reason it, it made me think of it was, and I wish I could remember his name because his comments stood out more than his name from last episode when uh, Tom played all the feedback. Mm. There was a guy on there that was so passionate about, let's have a return to just storytelling, just old-fashioned mm standalone Doctor Who storytelling like we had in the classic era. Now, I'm, I'm not after a return to the classic era where we end up with stories like Warriors of the Deep, which are just the most interminable four-episode length <laughs> nonsense. But with modern techniques and modern storytelling, we could come up with some real crackers of, of standalone stories. That What is wrong with just having a season full of really solidly paced standalone stories? Is it something that we have to have in Doctor Who? Is a season arc something that has to be there? Interesting. Well, first of all, let me come back to you on that and say, first of all, I quite like Warriors of the Deep. I think that's <laughs> interminable you used. <laughs> I watched it again recently and realised that it could have been two episodes long because the Silurians talked at, <laughs> hello there, <Yeah>. it... <laughs> Is time yes. to put our plan into action, mm. and that that was the end of the episode. I well, mean, <laughs> pretty much. No, I agree, and it always fascinates me, really, um, how you can have twenty years since the uh, Silurians. Well, it wasn't twenty years actually, was it? It was about ten years since the Silurians were used. Uh, prior to, to Warriors of the Deep. And mm. the special effects and makeup were considerably better in Pertwee's era than they were in Davison's. And oh, you know, anyway, but yeah. aside from aside from that, I actually quite like that story. But it's an interesting point that you raise. And as far as I'm concerned, Doctor Who continually changes the way it tells its stories. Sometimes it does do very strong standalone stories and you move on. And I don't think just because Stephen Moffat is now altered the format for the time being into, you know, an arc story, that it's going to stay like that forever. You know, Stephen Moffat's going to move on in the same way that Russell T. Davis moved on. And the new guy who comes in, I'm certain, will have his own way of telling stories. And that's the beauty of Doctor Who. If you want to go and see a standalone episode, you can pick out something probably from the Russell T. Davis era um, that, yes, it was still... You know, he still had an arc, but it was disposable, something like Bad Wolf. So if you don't really want to get dragged into the story every time you revisit um, a, a single episode from a series, you can do that. And I think the Doctor Light episodes uh, were exactly that. And, uh, you know, new Doctor Who, as far as I'm concerned isn't a move to a definitive position. Doctor Who is not going to be like this forever. And I'm just enjoying seeing Doctor Who delivered in various different ways. You know, I, I don't mind it being an arc story at the moment. And, you know, and I, and I wait for um, season, what, 40, perhaps, uh, when we do get, you know, a couple of differently told stories. OK, cool.
Well, as you can tell, I was quite desperate, really, to uh, to air a couple of my theories, uh, run them past Trevor, who shot them down pretty quick as well. But, uh, you know, it, it has been a little while now since A Good Man Goes to War aired here in the UK, at least. And I think fandom has calmed down a little bit. They've started looking at the seven episodes as one big story as opposed to a story with seven parts. And, you know, conversation and theorising is still going on now. And we'd be interested in what you think. Um, during, during a time when season six was airing, we had the most feedback we've ever received on a DWP. And it has dried up a little bit, certainly about season six anyway. And I'd, I'd quite like to get that debate going again, just a little bit. So send in your theories. They don't have to be kooky. You can actually believe in them, um, if, if you would like. <laughs> and, and by all means, tell us what you think of, of what Trevor and I have just discussed, which, um, as we recalled, was about three weeks ago, so I can't quite remember what I said then. <laughs> but uh, but by all <laughs> means, send in your thoughts to feedback at the thedoctorwhopodcast.com. Anyway, Trev, we've had, well, I suppose it's by way of compensation for there being no Doctor Who, a certain spin-off series aired the first episode of the fourth season this week. That's Torchwood Miracle Day, and the first episode was called A New World. So, very briefly, we're not going to go into huge reviews of each of these episodes, I'm afraid, on a Doctor Who podcast. Um, That's a view that I had just before it aired, and shortly after it aired, I was even more of that view. I didn't want to waste my time talking about it, but that probably <laughs> gives away what I thought of it. Trev, you go first. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of getting a vibe there that you didn't really like New Torchwood. <laughs> I, I didn't dislike it. I was hugely disappointed, yes. Uh, but will I be tuning in for the remaining nine episodes? Yes, but... Uh, you better not let me get started because you know what happens then. I just carry on and on and on. Um, so, Trev, you tell me what you thought of it to start with. <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll preface this and remind our listeners that I've only seen probably three quarters of season one. I watched Children of Earth and absolutely adored it. I, I thought it was fantastic. So I, I just want to preface that first before people start writing in and going, well, this happened in season two and blah, 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 blah. I haven't seen it, guys. I'm sorry. Um, I think... Miracle Day is an interesting story because it puts Torchwood fans in quite a quandary. To me, it seems to be trying to capture the um, realism, the the quality look that Children of Earth gave us uh, last year and some of the more in-depth storylines. But it's also trying to recapture some of the... It's also trying to capture a little bit of what Season 1 and Season 2 were like, that... um, more fan stuff there, I suppose. Because Children of Earth was really gritty. It was down to earth. It was grim. It was depressing. You know, there, there wasn't much chance in there for humour. There, there wasn't a lot of uh, room in there to, to see um, some of the more whimsical side of the characters, which I think we'd seen in earlier Torchwood. I think they're trying to bring that back a little bit with Miracle Day. They're, they're still trying to give you the very adult storyline. And I mean adult in, in terms of not what Torchwood thought it was saying when it was adult, but adult in terms of um, it's trying to present us with a storyline that makes you think, that doesn't play itself out in 20 minutes, that 
um, doesn't rely on any visceral gore to, to a certain extent. Stuff written for adults, I suppose. But it's also trying to reintroduce back into the series what I think the fans loved. Characters doing quirky things. Now, I, I think you've mentioned on the forums as well, James, w- one of the early scenes with uh, Eve Miles' character um, putting a pair of earmuffs on her baby before <laughs> shooting at the helicopter. Mm. Um, now, I, I, I think that's something that would have never, ever played out in, in Children of Earth. No. But I think no. it fits perfectly in here because they're going for that meld of old and new with this. Yes. I, it's interesting because I hadn't considered Russell T. Davis trying to introduce some of the elements that work quite well from Series 1 and 2 into this latest season before... But I think you probably are correct. This It's definitely... Well, put it this way. Episode 1 of Series 4 had more humour in it than all five episodes of Children on Earth put together. Um, mm. But it depends on how you use humour. I mean, the scene you just referred to, pulling the earmuffs on the baby, Trev, I thought was hilarious. But it was also farcical. It was utterly ridiculous. Who in their right mind... Well, first of all... Okay, now helicopters are very loud, <laughs> generally. You, you you hear them coming. You don't look out the window and suddenly see this large military helicopter as Gwen did. And then what's your first reaction? The minute you see this helicopter, you think, right, must get a pair of earmuffs, must get a bazooka, wait until the <laughs> pilot has moved the helicopter around slightly fired a, a RPG or something, right through the house, and then shoot it back. It was ludicrous. That particular scene for me had absolutely no credibility whatsoever. And yes, that was the only part of the episode that I did tweet about afterwards because I couldn't hold it within myself. I just couldn't. But in all fairness, Trev, there were some other areas as well. I mean, Rex Matheson's character, he had me in stitches for all of the wrong reasons. After after he'd been, well, killed basically and he was still alive he crawled out of bed going oh oh you know he's got this big crutch and he crawls all his way to a taxi pulls out the phone has a conversation which i think probably lasts forget the actual flight uh, that he went on about 17 hours or thereabouts and his his dialogue is punctuated by this groaning and oh pain <laughs> And by the time he gets to Wales, you know, he's falling out of cabs on a crutch. It's comedy. The guy hasn't slept. It's the longest telephone conversation ever. And then you've got Esther, the character of Esther, on the other end, just calmly chatting away to him. Um, And they seem to think that lines referring to Wales, just because they're basically giving Wales a name check. I mean, come on, it was two weeks filmed in Wales for this entire series. They seem to think that means that it retains its British roots and its British quirkiness, which of course is so integral to the success of Doctor Who. And they were trying to create the same effect for Wales within series one or two of Torchwood. Um, so I just think it was very, very unsuccessful, I have to say. I think it was Americanized in the worst possible sense. And I know a lot of listeners will be groaning when they hear that but many americans have been saying it was too americanized i don't mean that meaning it's too aligned to contemporary american dramas that would actually be to give torture a compliment and i don't mean to do that what i'm suggesting (laughs) is that it's americanized in the way that 
American TV was all guns, bombs and actions in the late 80s. I mean, this was like an upscaled version of Miami Vice for me. And as a result, the characters, particularly Jack, I'm afraid, and, and Gwen and Reese to a degree, were very diluted. And I just didn't didn't buy it. On top of all of that, this entire concept, Trev, God, and you were saying you were rambling, listen to me ramble, the entire <laughs> concept simply isn't robust enough to last 10 episodes. No one dies. Right, make that last 10 hours. You know, it's it, it's like oh, I, children I, I, of Earth. I think it's, you're being slightly yeah. harsh there, James. I, I'm Maybe. sure they'll introduce something else into it. And, and I'm sure even Russell T Davies has realised that he's got 10 episodes to fill up here. That That's not going to be the only thing going on in that. They, they did slowly start introducing the concept with, with Jack that while everyone's living... He's dying, or he can now be injured. I, I, I for me, it's t- it's got Russell T Davies fingerprints all all over it. You know, you you can tell it's slightly quirky. He he does quite a lot of exposition through um, a short conversation that two relative strangers will have. For instance, the nurse and Esther when Rex Matheson is in is in the hospital ward. Um, they they do a lot of talking about what's happening all over the world and no one's dying, etc. I, I I do find the concept of no one dying interesting. But for me, that would have been a 50-minute episode or perhaps a two-parter, you know, in in Doctor Who, if it was translated into the Doctor Who world, not stretched over 10 episodes. And I don't know, Children of Earth was a very basic concept again. And for me, the pacing of Children of Earth, irrespective of whether you liked it or loathed it, was incredibly pedestrian. And I am slightly concerned that they are, basically have got a very pedestrian story in a very fast and a very Americanized and a very action orientated um, series now, and I, I'm beginning to wonder if that really is the limit. And clearly, we've only seen one tenth of this series yet. But if that's the limit of what we're going to see, then I can't see this series lasting. I really can't. I think we'll have to answer that question in a couple of weeks when we've had a chance to watch maybe the next two or three episodes, and uh, we we return to Torchwood and. Uh... Maybe it might become a bit clearer by then. I mean, certainly if it hasn't done anything concrete by, say, the third or fourth episode, then maybe some of your comments might be uh, valid there, James. But I, I think you're being a little bit too critical on something that's only um, 10% through at the moment. Well, before we sign off here at the Camper Van for another episode of the DWP, um, it's competition entry draw time. Now, um, listeners, I don't know how many entries we've received, and I'm about to find out from James. I hope the situation has been redressed and we have more than the, quite frankly, pitiful amount of entries that we had (laughs) last time. James, how many entries did we have for our latest competition? Well, this has proved to be the most popular competition that we've we've ever run. We had 103 entries. Oh, so, excellent. Trev, you put, excellent. you actually giving the answer in the sentence after the question was set may have had something to do with it. but <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, James. Well, it's, I don't know it's, what you're talking about. We're very pleased here at, uh, at DWP Towers. Oh, I've been wanting to say that for a long time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so well done. Um, 103 of you in with a chance of winning. Um, well, we've got three books here, but we've got two prizes. So Trev, do you want to give me a number between 
one and 103. This is for the second prize, so this is the runner-up prize for the man who invented Daleks. Um, I'm going to go for number 80. I have to scroll down because the spreadsheet is so big it can't all fit on my screen. That is Charles Powers from Melbourne, no doubt. Oh, Melbourne? Although oh, I lovely. have a feeling, though, Trev, this is Melbourne in Florida. Ah, um, there's there's more than one Melbourne. They would or appear Melbourne. to be, and because it's got Melbourne F L against his ah. address. Yes, congratulations, Charles. By the time you're listening to this, a copy of the Man Who Invented Daleks by Alwyn Turner will be winging its way to you, either from the U of K or from Australia. Anyway, Trev, time for you to come up with a number. For first prize, which is another copy of The Man Who Invented Daleks, along with Michael Moorcock's much-anticipated hardback Doctor Who book featuring the Doctor and Amy called The Coming of the Terrifiles. 25. 25. Oh, I have to scroll up again now. Hang yeah, on a second. I know. That's, that's the reason I did it. Yeah. That's yeah. 26. No, you haven't won. 25 is Kimberly Paul. And I'm not quite sure where you're from, Kimberly, but well done. You've won first prize. You've got these two fantastic books that will be heading your way fairly soon. And I would just like to say thank you to absolutely everybody who had taken the time uh, to send in the competition entries. Some of you sent um, considerably more than just the two words that you needed uh, to enter and it was uh, it was really nice it was reading some of these comments people saying that they've never emailed in before and uh, because Trev gave them the answer they thought they really ought to enter this competition <laughs> so Trev <laughs> we might have to use this tactic again in the future and uh, on next week's episode we're going to be launching another competition this time for a copy of one of the best ever classic Doctor Who stories on DVD, and that's Paradise Towers. Oh, lovely. I, <laughs> I, I can see people quivering over their email inboxes right now, just dying to enter. Indeed, indeed. So congratulations, Kimberly, and congratulations, Charles. Uh, your books will be winging their way to you pretty much as you're listening. James, what have we got happening on the Doctor Who podcast next week. Oh, well, I'm so glad you asked me that, Trev. We've got a rather special edition of the podcast coming up next week. Listeners will remember that we spent a little bit of time last week speaking to Sophie Aldred and Beth Chalmers, and throughout both those interviews, the name Andrew Cartmel was mentioned quite a few times, and he's the guy who basically was script editor uh, throughout pretty much all of the Seventh Doctor's era. And we're really pleased to say that Tom managed to sit down and speak to Andrew for, it was about an hour, I think, unedited. Um, so we're going to bring you that interview next week. And it really is something special. So make sure you tune into the Doctor Who podcast in about seven days' time. Well, James, um, after that episode, I think it's time to uh, wander off into the sunset, don't you think? Absolutely, yes. Sunset, I can see, is just... It's beautiful, it's outside my window, and I've just got to walk towards it. Oh, lovely. It's so romantic. Isn't it? Care to dance? <laughs> no, clear off. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, with that rejection ringing in my ears, we'll see you all next week, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye for now. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. 
Thank you for listening. Take care.